Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. Here's part two of my conversation with Bob Lawlish. Okay, so we, we've I'm I'm taking this interview all over the place, and I don't know if I should apologize for that or be excited about it, Bob. I I think I I'm excited about it. I'm I'm enjoying where this is going, and it's really evolving, not as two separate compartmentalized conversations, but one big longer conversation. So we've talked about you know what moving the needle looks like. Was there some point at which you got better at doing that because you were saying no to things outside of your wheelhouse? That's a good question. Yes. I, I, I want to say yes. I am still making the transition uh, in a number of different ways to fully locked in on the positioning. And I think the most important way is that one of the things I've realized is that thought leadership is if I want this piece of the business, there will be other things and other problems that I need to solve for people as well, for organizations as well, because they're not in a position, they might not be in a position to um, simply hire a person who is dedicated to thought leadership. But I am working down towards the point where this is all I want to do. Mm-hmm. Right? So building up, I'm building up expertise in dealing with clients who have this problem and then they have a couple other problems like presentation training, mm-hmm. which are related to this problem. Um, but it's forced me to do some things that I wouldn't have done if I didn't, if I hadn't specialized. Um, I think I sent you in the email when we first corresponded mm-hmm. that uh, it forced me to develop what I'm calling a black box. Which is a- let, me, let me stop you right there. Just a note for the listeners. So if you look back in this podcast, um, I can't remember the exact episode number, but you'll see a conversation I had with David Baker about this concept that Bob is about to dive into. So if you're if, if any of this kind of leaves you with questions, that would be a good thing to reference. And I'm sorry for the interruption, Bob. Go ahead with yeah. what you were about to say. I was, I was hoping to add, that you would either touch on this or I could ask you about it. So. Go right ahead. So, you know, I was running into the problem uh, that you had asked about, you had referenced earlier, which is that thought leadership is a nebulous concept. And a lot of people claim to be thought leaders and to be doing thought leadership that don't have any business doing that. But then that becomes just a kind of prejudice right? You don't like that person or you don't like their style or you find their ideas empty. And how do you quantify that really? How do you? Yeah. How do you take it out of this totally subjective realm? Right. Right. So, you know, in working with clients, I, I wanted to have something that was, I wanted to have a methodology, an evaluative methodology for approaching them. And so I developed a matrix uh, that listed all of the competencies of, uh, of a researcher who was a thought leader, mm-hmm. all of the both skills, competencies, and markers, and then levels uh, that 
researchers could attain from sort of newbie entry level to global superstar. Mm -hmm. And I did the same thing for organizations. So that allows me to, and I can refine that and I am refining it, but it allows me to evaluate the, the organizations that I'm working with as well as individual thought leaders. It allows me to do comparative analyses with other organizations. Once I have a large enough database, I can do a growth map for both the individuals and the organization. Here's where you are today. Here's where you'd like to be. And then these are the skills we need to develop and here's how we're going to do it. And, um, those are all really, really beneficial for just working with the organization. That's not something that I would have developed had I not specialized, but the pressure of specializing forced me to realize that I needed it and gave me the time in essence to, to bring it to life. Yeah. And my sort of kooky term for that is this, this satisfaction gap where you can see how, what the, what kind of improvement would come from having a tool like that, but what exactly it looks like, I think in the early stages when you start to feel this satisfaction gap, what it looks like is fuzzy. At least it is for me. And, but you're, you're just not satisfied with the status quo. And that, that dissatisfaction creates this impetus to do something about it. I am curious, Bob, if, if that's kind of how it unfolded for you or if it – it sort of sounds like it is based on what you said. But it, uh, did you did you have that feeling of like, ah, oh, this could be better. Um, I've, got, I've got to do something to make this better. I was – yeah. I, you know, I was – so if you're saying that about my work, yeah, I was, I was thinking – Yeah, and I am specifically saying it about yeah. that yeah. that empty space that now you have a black box that goes in. Right. So I was writing a lot, you know, I was, I was writing long reports and that, that was the, I was writing just, and I didn't know how to structure the reports exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this allowed me to compress into a very small space. Um, all of my expertise on, okay, my point of view, this is what I think an organization that's a thought leader looks like. These mm -hmm. are the competencies. And this is what a thought leader looks like. And here are names attached to each of these levels. So if you're an organization that um, in any particular sector, I can pull out names for, for people, researchers who are outside of your organization and say, well, if you're aspiring to be a level four or a level five, here are those names. And they can look at those, those people and say, yeah, Okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. That's somebody with that's somebody with global impact, or that's somebody with sector impact. The one other thing that I'll mention is that uh, a lot of these organizations, it doesn't matter about size, but a lot of them worry about not just knowledge capital, but what I'll call, for lack of a better term, thought leadership capital. They worry about people leaving, and if this person leaves, they Let's say they've got a person who's really good on TV. Mm -hmm. That person leaves. Who's going to be? We'll never be on TV again, right? Well, how will we ever? Well, if you had a map 
uh, if you had a if if you had a gap analysis that that mapped who's closest to that person in terms of skills development and who you need to focus on over the next year or so to build a redundancy so that if superstar tv superstar leaves you've got somebody in her place to offer to media mm-hmm. you, you know that's a really valuable um asset and it's a valuable thing for me to have it's a valuable facet of the analysis for me to have so this thing has helped me crystallize my thinking but also sharpen my value i think to to uh existing clients but also prospects as well yeah i can see how that i I would i think um feel very good about applying the term you know uniquely valuable intellectual property to what you've created and from a marketing perspective i think that's maybe not an ace in the hole but still it's incredibly valuable so um, I had not thought to put this on my list of questions, Bob, but um, do you ever run into conflict of interest stuff that you have to navigate with prospective clients? I get asked about it. I haven't so far. Uh, you mean in terms of I'm working with one organization and then helping another that's a direct competitor? Right. Or you're approached by a competitor who's like, you know, do you have any conflicts of interest or just does it come up at any point in the process since you are, you're not quite in a vertical, but I imagine the audience of companies you serve is not, it's not tens of thousands. It might be hundreds or just thousands. Right. And it has come up and it, it is interesting and I haven't figured out what to do about it. I mean, it hasn't reached a, it hasn't reached a crisis. Um, So it hasn't been a real problem, but it is interesting that you mentioned that because if you see patterns in companies, you also see patterns sometimes in positioning and Mm -hmm. you'll see patterns in messaging. And part of the work that I have to do sometimes involves um, constructing new messaging architecture Mm -hmm. for the firm to support the new thought leadership positioning. Sure. And I have to be obviously very professional about compartmentalizing, if you will, what I've done for a competitive, for a competing organization. Right. I'm working with that organization. It it sounds like almost like you have to temporarily forget (laughs) what you did for them so that you're not, uh, imitating or doing something derivative or that's what I imagine it must be like. Right. And I think the best way to solve that is to not be on the implementation, not be, not be, um, what's the metaphor? Well, just not be in charge of the implementation, but be facilitating the implementation of that. So, you know, Andy Raskin, I don't know if you follow him at all. Uh, he does strategic storytelling. Actually, he's out in the Bay Area hmm. for a lot of um, uh, Silicon Valley companies. Just did a post on Medium about how he's gone from writing the strategic story for companies to facilitating it mm-hmm. for facilitating that process because it's so much more effective when the CEO and the executive team own the story. They own the new narrative. 
so they, if they develop it themselves, they've got a stake of ownership rather than the consultant developing something for them and they can take or leave. And that's something that I, I want to learn from. I think facilitation is um, a powerful way of actually achieving differentiation and avoiding conflict of interest in, in these cases. Yeah, I happen to agree. Uh, that's a great summary of my approach and, you know, the simple, dumb way I convey it is to say, I, I don't make decisions for any of my clients. I just, I facilitate the decision-making. And it, for me, it comes more from this belief that the decision won't stick if it comes from the outside. It just, you know, it'll be, well, this guy told me to do that. And I, I agree it's a good idea, but here's all the reasons why I didn't follow through on that. And I feel like those that set of reasons becomes much smaller <laughs> Or hopefully goes to zero, if if it's a decision that comes from them. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Uh, if you were in the position, I don't know if you do diagnostics and assessments with any clients anymore. But if you do, how do you avoid that dynamic? The dynamic of like, you want to get to facilitation. You want them to be stakeholders. You want them to own it. So if you're doing um, a diagnostic and assessment, you're coming from that expert practitioner position and you're making pronouncements and you've got a strong point of view. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you get them to own that? I think I do. So the first thing I do is there are, uh, there are guardrails. So if someone is, and just to, I guess, make this more specific, the thing, the question I want to help people solve at first is, um, how do I specialize? What market position do I eventually want to own in, in some capacity? That's the one question I'm focused on at first, unless someone has already answered that question satisfactorily, and then we can you know, work together on lead generation. So on that first question, there's, there's guardrails, the stuff that will just clearly not work. And I don't care how I found out that it won't work, I'm going to share that with them. But in a generalized sense, I'm not going to say, well, this client proved to me that that won't work, so I'm now sharing that with you. Um, that's the first thing I do is, is kind of lay down guardrails. And then the second thing I do is there's a sort of um, graduated level of, I'm not quite sure how to put this, Bob, but a sort of, there, there's basically two levels at which someone can choose to take risk. And so if they're in the, the, the um, group that needs to take on less risk in making this decision, then I will um, provide more of a template for them to follow. And then if they're in the, the category that can take more risk, then I feel like they can do stuff like you've done and kind of, you know, map out their own destiny in terms of positioning and do some things that are more risky. And for them, the, the way I avoid any, anything that looks like a conflict of interest is I just make them do their own research and come to their own conclusions. I don't make them. I just say, well, this is how we're going to work together. So um, I don't know if that's exactly answering the question, but that's, that's how I approach it. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and what I do is is you know different enough yeah, I from have your. To think about how I how I integrate that. Yeah. Yeah. What I do is different enough from what you do that I'm not sure there's a lot there you can 
um, integrate, you know, exactly as is. You're working with much larger, much more mature organizations. I tend to work with individuals and very small businesses. So, um, you know, I, they don't have a board of directors or what have you. They also have, I think, fewer concerns about conflicts of interest. There's a, yeah, there's a, uh, there's such value to coming in and bringing objectivity to the process, that outside look, um, what David Baker calls, um, you can't read your own label. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I come in and read their label for them. And then there's that shock. Uh, there was a suspicion internally, generally, that this is what was going on. But then there's a shock to see it in sharp relief. And um, the, 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 the journey from that to ownership is one of the challenges that I face in the, in the business. Yeah, as you're saying that, I can almost feel the weight of – and, you know, I think it depends on the, your personality and the role you want to play with your clients. But it, this being the bearer of bad news and then making it, what do you do at that point? Are you wanting to be involved in how they process that as a sort of, you know, organization processing a, a sort of collective trauma almost? Or is it more you're like, okay, you guys deal with this and we'll regroup and figure out a plan and I'm thinking specifically of the organization who thought they were amazing thought leaders, but have very few of the hallmarks that need to be in place for that to be true. You definitely want to be part of the process of, uh, as the term of art is these days, socializing uh-huh. the findings. Right. Right. So you don't want to just present the report and let the organization figure out how to distribute it and socialize it. Mm-hmm. You definitely want to make a presentation, be there to answer questions, be there to interpret things and to soften what could be received as some very hard edges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, I mean, that's really, and then that's also really good for the engagement right. going forward. So if you're going to be part of developing you know, and I'm talking about a diagnostic and assessment. Yeah. If you're going to be t- part of the strategy formation and then if you want to be part of its implementation, being there and and modeling that role of partner, because that's what you really should be, that's crucial. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's something that I haven't insisted on always in the past and that I want to insist on in the future. Interesting. So let's sort of put you next to a um, a generalist content firm. That's who I'm going to – maybe you have a better idea, but I want the folks at home to understand the types of things that you under, you know about your clients that a generalist, uh, quote-unquote, competitor would not know. And I'm picking like a content marketing agency because I think they're the ones who would – claim to be able to help their clients produce thought leadership. Maybe it would be just a generalist marketing agency, but I'm thinking more specifically of a content marketing agency. 
So when you're talking to a prospect, what kinds of things do you already know just from having this outside perspective across multiple firms in the same audience that that generalist probably wouldn't know? Well, I already, one I've already mentioned, which is that uh, you need functional teams rather than divisional teams. So the content marketing organization or communications consulting group shouldn't just be talking to the communi- their communications colleagues within mm-hmm. the client. Mm-hmm. The structure needs to be different. It needs to contain all of these strategic functional elements that are talked about in order for it to work. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that I have a very strong point of view on that a lot of people in content marketing and even thought leadership d- disagree on is that I don't believe in external ghostwriting as a sustainable Mm-hmm. For my for my um, addressable market because the expertise of these subject matter experts you need an internal team if you're going to do this well you need somebody who's a really good at basically editorial director internal that's work that's trusted by the the researchers um, that knows how to frame things well, that can push back on them. Mm-hmm. Working with someone who's external, who doesn't live and breathe the subject matter, doesn't live and breathe the target audiences, it's not going to work. Yeah. So that that's where a, a lot of content marketing agencies will come in and say, well, well, we'll handle the content for you. We'll just interview you and then we'll, we'll write it up. And right there, huge problems ensue because there's just a basic level of trust that that's breached the subject matter experts won't like the way it's written it won't be voiced properly uh terms of art won't be used properly blah 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 so trust is huge there yeah Uh, those are those are a couple of things and yeah there are there are other things about individual thought leadership for researchers that i've that i'm learning like how important having a book is. It's not just, it's not simply about doing a series of op-eds or mounting a campaign around a particular piece of research. That I think would be another thing is that, um, and why I, I am strongly in favor of internal teams doing this and developing internal teams, um, to do, to run a thought leadership program is that most of the way research is communicated, most of the way the research based organizations are communicate is around pieces of research. Mm-hmm. They'll do a paper and then they'll try to market the paper. You don't want to own research. You want to own ideas. Hmm. You want to own solutions. Um, I was talking to a chief scientist at a, at a, um, an NGO. I was doing a landscape analysis and interviewing him for it in, he said to me, everybody's got papers. What gives you market edge is thought leadership. Mm-hmm. If you orient your communications and your marketing around the individual research product, there'll always be another research product. But if you try to own an idea, that's a campaign and it will go on for, it should go on for nine to 12 to 15 months. And that's thinking like a marketer rather than a communications professional. That's thinking like a person who has to keep on hammering on an idea to get through to an audience. Mm-hmm. 
rather than a communications person who just puts something out and then moves on to the next thing. And uh, a point of clarification for the folks at home listening, I think some percentage of you are going to think marketer and then immediately think somebody who has something to sell, who's applying pressure of some kind to sell that. And there's a whole other idea of a marketer as somebody who wants to create impact or change the culture or change some facet of the culture. And I think that's the more appropriate definition for what Bob's talking about here, assuming um, you agree with that, Bob. <laughs> I do agree with that. Um, and But I'm, I'm also using – I totally agree with that, Philip. I'm also using the – Sasha Dichter the, um, at Acumen wrote a blog post – I think it was recently about, I'm going to butcher the joke, so I'm not even going to try to tell the joke, but it was a joke about, about marketers versus communicators. So your audience may think those are synonymous. They're not, generally. And the way that they're usually defined is that communicators, marketing deals with PR and, communi- and product. Um I'm sorry, communicators deal with PR and then marketing deals with product. But mm-hmm. Sasha had a really interesting distinction. He said, marketers think in terms of of persistence. Communicators think in terms of one-off products. They think journalistically. They think, we, we talked about that. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Mm. Whereas a marketer says, we talked about that. Let's talk about it some more. Let's talk about it until our audience understands what we're talking about. Yeah, and if what you're what you're getting behind is like a big idea, that idea of persistence I think is critical. Um, you know, there, there's a sort of luminary in in the world of software development, um, D- David Handelman, something or another. He goes by the shorthand DHH, and uh, you know he, oh, he says, right. yeah. "Yeah," and so he says something to the effect that you know if you if you if you want to like represent a big idea, you're going to talk about it for like 10 years <laughs> and then people will feel like it came out of nowhere and it's obvious, but it was you getting behind that idea for, you know, the better part of a decade. I'm also butchering the quote, but I think the essence of it is there. Yeah. It's the concept of the overnight success that took 10 years. Right. So Bob, I want to shift gears a little bit and wrap up with, me challenging you to pretend like you're a visiting professor for my audience, um, which is primarily these, um, you know, self-employed folks who are running very small businesses. They're themselves or them and a small team, but really the business decision-making is, is all consolidated in them or them and a partner. And what I'm hoping is that you can sort of help them understand how they could prepare to do thought leadership or how they could start applying this idea. I think it's absolutely revolutionary for someone in that position to get behind a big idea. And, and you know, it, it's an idea that has legs to go longer than a few months. And for that to become a part of what their business is. Um, so, I'm sure you're up for the challenge, but I also want to get your permission before I put you on the spot this way. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I, I am one of that. I am one of that audience, obviously, and I fit that fit that definition. So. Right. Right. So, uh, where do we begin with that? 
I'm going to say, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to venture this and you can tell me whether this, um, starts to fit the bill and I'll mention his name again. He, he is, uh, the, the animal spirit of this podcast. So when I was working with David Baker, uh, he challenged me in the course of helping me refine my positioning in an exercise that he called drop and give me 20. Mm-hmm. And the essence of the exercise is if you're writing to a list of prospects, put down 20 ideas and not just a sentence, but you know, write a couple of bullet points under a topic sentence for each of them. Mm-hmm. And those ideas all have to speak to your audience about a problem that they have. And when your audience reads them, when those prospects read them, they have to act as if they have to respond as if you had a camera in their office, as if you knew their business as, and their problem as well as, as they did. That's, that's a very high bar. And when I did it, it took me a while to do it mm-hmm. a couple of months and it. The metaphor I use is it felt like carving granite with a spork, uh, <laughs> a plastic spork, maybe <laughs> for some <yes>. of us. <laughs> I haven't seen a metal spork. I think that, wow, but I, yeah, <laughs> send me the link. I'd, I'd like to see it. Anyway, that's an incredibly, that's a great place to start. It's a great exercise. So you're refining your own thinking about your audience. You're refining your thinking about what's useful to them. Mm-hmm. And then, so take that list and then send it around to, if you've got a mastermind group, send it to the mastermind group. Send it to people you're already working with. Mm-hmm. Um, or send it to a prospect and get their reactions to it and keep working on it. So perfection is your enemy. We interrupt this regularly scheduled broadcast to tell you that um, I had some kind of issue on the, on the connection here. Sorry, I had to cut out uh, a moment or two. You're not missing much, and it picks up and gets better from here. You know, it, it just is such a wonderful combination of like low stakes, so it's not risky. And and a lot of the folks I work with are fairly risk intolerant, and that's why I, I focus on the. The, the risk aspect of this. You're, it's not like you going out on a limb or not much, but it's also this transition away from being reactive and saying, okay, client, tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it for you. And it's a move into more of a proactive place. And, you know, half of, at least grammatically, half of thought leadership is leadership. And leadership is, at least my idea of it is, it's not a reactive thing, or it's not primarily reactive. And that's what I love about this suggestion, is you're starting to explore being a leader. Absolutely. You're, and this is great practice for your engagements. So you're not an order taker, or you're aspiring not to be right. an order taker. You're aspiring to... Be the expert practitioner in the Blair Ends right. phrase that leads that leads the client towards 
something they might not have imagined for themselves, but that you know is the best place right. for them. And that's that's this is these are great exercises, not just in cultivating an audience, but in developing that posture. So that's maybe a starting point. Is this um, you know ideation about? topics or challenges for your audience or um, insight into the problems they suffer from? What's next? For, you know, I I mean, this is about lead generation, right? Um, Or maybe it's a step before lead generation. Mm -hmm. You know, then publish publicly using, if you're not ready to if you're not ready to publish emails, if you're not ready to send to a list, publish on Medium. Use Start publishing public, publicly and start getting into the habit of doing it frequently. Mm-hmm. Or just publish on, on a blog. Um, so start getting into the habit of blocking out time to do this and doing it frequently and regarding it as part of your... Um, part of your business practice, part of being a professional. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot. It, it, like, is this is this something you're doing, or um, because I, it is something that I'm doing? Yeah, I'm starting to do it right now. What yeah. would you let slide in order to preserve the time to publish regularly? And I know that's almost a hostile question, Bob. I apologize, <laughs> but I'm I'm very curious. Like different people, different among you know among our cohort of uh, you know solo consultants, we all prioritize this slightly differently. So I'm just that's what I'm trying to get at is like what what is this more important than? It's more important than. It's more important than being perfect uh, in every iteration of what you deliver to a client. So I think it's we're taught in a lot of in a lot of literature and a lot of uh, a lot of communication now about business development to over deliver Mm. and over delivery is endless this is and it, it over delivery can result in you having no time at all for lots of things that are really important like yeah, it's, it's sort of fractal isn't it the over delivery is like you can right. keep uh going deeper into it so the this is this is an occasion uh, perhaps to examine how do you how available are you to clients depending on your business? Mm -hmm. Do you respond immediately? Do you have to respond immediately? Do you have to be on the Slack channel? Um, Or do you have to respond immediately to their Slack messages? Do you have to write an incredibly elaborate email? Do you have to write a a 12 page proposal or can you write a one page proposal to a client? Can you standardize your proposal process? I think there are lots of different ways to achieve efficiency to do the same thing that doing as effectively or more effectively in shorter spaces 
that will leave you the time and by time, I mean an hour a day to do this. Yeah, I agree. I, I have to oh, go ahead. If you, if you thought I was going to say, if you thought I was going to say, don't exercise, I wasn't going to say <laughs> that. Because... Well, there's that. Or this, this meal. We, we all hope to be able to a build a business we enjoy. And then once we have that to enjoy it for as long as, as makes sense for us. And I think the exercise is a sort of non-negotiable component of that. Sorry, the uh, garbage truck is making a, a rare, unexpected guest appearance on this podcast. <laughs> okay, Bob. Well, I, um, I I feel like you and I have enough of a common background that we could talk for hours. I am not confident that <laughs> that my guests would enjoy, or that the uh, audience would enjoy that. Or I think they'd enjoy your part. I'm not sure they enjoy my part. Anyway, I'd like to wrap this up with um, asking where folks could find a connect with you or find out more about what you do uh science is the website and there's a contact form there uh, they can also see me on twitter uh where i'm i am occasionally at at r l a l a s z and i also have a linkedin page uh bob lawish uh l-a-l-a-s-z so i'm happy to correspond uh and thank you for the opportunity. I love talking with you.